Please bow your heads with me and pray. Heavenly Father, our efforts to know you are futile without your help. Our efforts to follow you are helpless without your help. Our desires to know you and make you known never reaches the make known without your help. Please help us in this hour. Please flush out our minds from ungodly thinking and fill us with spiritual thinking by the power of your word through the name that is above all names, the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10 for the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians 13, 10. Delegated divine authority to congregations is good, is good. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Delegated divine authority to congregations is good. And I'm going to tell you four things about how this delegated divine authority to the congregation is good Under the headings of authority, number one, authority is not my enemy. Number two, authority is for my joy. Number three, authority is for all the nations. And number four, authority is finally the triune gods. Let us read God's word now. 2 Corinthians 13, 10 through 14. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe or curt in my use of authority, that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, family, have joy, be glad, or rejoice. Cairo, that's how Jesus offered greetings to his disciples right after his resurrection. Rejoice. Greetings. Cairo. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Emphasis on the holy, not on the mode of kiss. Verse 13. All the saints greet you. All of them. All the saints everywhere greet you. Verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we can hardly help but offer that benediction, uh, an appropriate ending from us as a congregation, right? And all of God's people say, Amen. amen and amen. So we'll take it on its parts. First, verse 10. We need to see, because this delegated divine authority to congregations is good, since it's good for you, it's going to reap tangible benefits for you, we need to first get through our cultural misunderstanding that authority itself as a construct is an enemy. Authority itself as a construct is not your enemy. The Apostle Paul spends 29 chapters in 1 and 2 Corinthians trying to avoid enacting the obvious excommunicating, rebellious, unwilling to repent, sexually immoral sinners. That is, he's trying to avoid the usage of authority, the judicial proceedings of the church. 
He does address one sinner in particular in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then there's a restoration in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. However, his block of prospective excommunicants is as a very last resort at the end of both of these books during his third and final visit going to become a reality only if he has to be severe and not spare them. I'm quoting from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 in last week's sermon text. He does other things in these letters for sure, but this is always lurking in the background. That is, the worldliness of a small minority of professing Christians in the Corinthian church who don't follow the apostles' teachings and are at least lawless, perhaps of the sexual variety, if you read the end of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. The majority of the members have at this point in the story of the Corinthian church, five years into its life in AD 56, the majority of the members have repented. And these are addressed as brother and sister in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and then again right here at the very end of the book. But we read a concerned, emotionally mournful Paul writing to us in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 to this point, writing to build them up, not to tear them down, but writing with a style of warning. He is indeed in the bulk of chapters 10 through 13, pleading for the souls of a sinful minority that have not repented. He pleads for them by systematically exposing their sin, their syncretism, and their solidarity with the upstart anti-apostles at Corinth. Paul cares enough to speak in hyperbole and fake boasting, and he's willing to speak that way in order to see every single member of the Corinthian church ultimately presented mature in Christ. He wants every one of them, all of them, like a good shepherd in God's flock, he's going after the one lost sheep, even if the 99 percentile seems to be doing well enough. But Paul doesn't go after them with kid gloves on, as if to get them back is to coddle their idols, by no means. He offers a solid example for church members today. Expose the sin with great patience and the greatest amount of precision and passion for the person as you can muster possible. But with all those disclaimers, spiritual authority is real. And authority is not your enemy, though we are led to think that it is by the prince of this age. When the church is gathered for the purpose of maturing the saints, the church has an obligation to promote the building up of her members, that everyone may be presented maturing Christ on the final day, like Colossians 1.28 says. Only in these most extreme, obstinate cases is the best way to love a member, thus to deny that member's admittance to the Lord's table or excommunion them. Only after every other reasonable option to return that sinner to repentance from sexual sin has been exhausted does Paul recommend that the most loving, truthful thing to do for the sake of the immoral person and for the sake of his behavior not spreading to the other members, for the sake of the corporate witness of the church not lessening in the community, for the long-term sake of the restoration of the rebellious brother mainly, only then is excommunication or not sparing, or acting severely or curtly, to use the apostolic word there, and now the church authority now, only then is the exercise of church authority in that way the proper thing to do. But make no mistake, spiritual authority is real. And the non-use of it, as well as the misuse of it, is tantamount to church member malpractice. 
Judicial proceedings in the church are always the last resort to be pursued only when a case warrants it. However, to ignore the last resort is to turn a blind eye to the rule of law and the law of Christ. Anarchy is as dangerous as tyranny to those of us in this fallen human condition. And for our long-term spiritual health, for the right foundation, for the building of the Lord's house, it must be predicated on a spiritual authority, a spiritual authority that has been granted to the members of Christ's church to do the Lord's will. 2 Corinthians 12, 21 says that I mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity. I mourn over many of those, small group relatively speaking, but many of those, two would be many in this case. I mourn, I have to mourn over those who sinned earlier and have not repented. The test in 2 Corinthians 13, the pass-fail test, to put it in the language of you students that are graduating, it's a pass-fail test. And the pass-fail test is, is the member repentant of their sin? Have they turned from that sin? Not perfectly, imperfectly to be sure, but has that member repented of sin? Now, repentance is a fruit of the Spirit. Repentance is something that God has to move in us for it to be allowed to occur. I'm of the conviction from reading the scripture that a hellbound person that does not worship God will never repent. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they'll do it besmirkingly, not gladly, because that authority will always be the enemy of the non-saints. And that authority must forever be the friend of the saints. Divine authority is not your enemy. And insofar as it is properly wielded by those that it's been delegated properly to, authority is not your enemy in the church either. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 13.10 leads us down that path when it says, For this reason I write these letters to you, that I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given, because authority is given not to tear down, but what does it say? It's built, meant to build up the household of God, okidameo, to build it up. So that's why these things are written. And to ignore these things, well, to ignore them, we prove ignorant of Satan's designs and can be too easily outwitted by Satan, like 2 Corinthians 2.11 says. In attention to these things properly, these things of Scripture, these precious things, 2 Corinthians 2.15 and 17 states that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So we smell like Christ to all of us that are being saved. And in the right use of these things, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing. We wield a right witness to everybody around us as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God on the side of God as we speak in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.17. So we come to the tale of this book, 2 Corinthians and we come to the tale of this book and we understand afresh that authority is for our good. If you would indulge me in a brief excursion, I'm looking forward to hearing sermons this, 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 summer, this summer in the church. And sermons in summer seems to be tripping in my tongue there, but sermons this summer in the church. And one of them I'm looking forward to hearing is Kurt's going to do a two-part miniseries from Psalm 119 on the doctrine of the Word of God the importance of the Word of God, from Psalm 119, which is a great big, long psalm about the doctrine of the Word. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to our preachers in this church doing a summer study in the Word in July and August 
and we're going to do a study on lamentations and lament in the Bible and corporate lament and the sadness that we feel at times as believers in the church and the, the, the things that just can't be tritely ran over, like Job's supposed friends tried to tritely run over things that just can't be tritely ran over. So I'm looking forward to that. We're going to be borrowing from a church in Indianapolis. A uh, pastor wrote a book titled Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And so we're looking forward to that very, very much. And in the middle of that, between, I'm going to preach some elective sermons, perhaps mainly from Corinthians, to try to nail down some doctrine in the church as far as practical application for us with regard to matters of conscience and communion, the Lord's Supper, baptism. And also looking forward to talking to you about family worship time and how important that is and where we believe God is leading this church and so that kind of gives you a sense of where we're going. If, if all goes as planned, and God knows, I don't know, but if all goes as planned, I'm preparing to preach on an, on an apocalyptic book from the Bible, uh, Revelation. That's my intent to preach come probably October. And we might have a few friends of the congregation here in September. So that gives you kind of a sense of where we might go as a membership and where we might be preaching from this pulpit. But I, I need to, to remind you, that all of this is for the upbuilding of the church, whether it's warning the saints, whether it's really warning the unbelievers that they need to repent for the very first time and have faith in Jesus Christ. The proclamation of the gospel from the word is all for the upbuilding of the household of faith. It's for the upbuilding of the church. It's not for tearing it down. But God in his economy sees fit that authority be used rightly for the good of the family, just like a good parent would use authority rightly. It's not that none of us, it's not that none of it, that we don't sin. It's not even that we don't have proclivities to sin sexually. I like what uh, Donna Rice Hughes said about this. And Donna Rice Hughes is, if you were to study her past, she has some authority to say something like this. She said, if you think you can't fall into sexual immorality, you're either godlier than David, stronger than Samson, or wiser than Solomon. If you think you cannot fall into sexual immorality, you're either godlier than David, stronger than Samson, or wiser than Solomon. You're not, and neither are your kids. We're all vulnerable. God made us as sexual creatures, and the enemy knows it. And he's going to go after you every which way that he can. That's internet safety advocate Donna Rice Hughes on the Olasky interview of The World and Everything in it on May 9. The foundational issue has never been our ability to sin and be separated from God and his ability to save and reunite us with himself. That's not the purpose of the church's authority. Salvation is what I just said. God does all of that. A fruit of salvation is repentance, just like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth. We're going to get into that in a moment because clearly 2 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12 is fruits of the Spirit in 13. That's, that's what it is. But I want you to understand that a fruit of the Spirit, an unstated fruit, is repentance. The hellbound will never repent. They will bow to the authority of Christ, as I've said, but they'll do it besmirkingly. They will not repent of their sin. The reason for the call to repent is to produce spiritual fruit in keeping with, with repentance. This is not perfectionism for us. Your battle with sin will be lifelong and at times sexual. But this is a sincere battle for the sake of your sanity, for the sake of the assurance of your salvation, that you have turned over a new leaf, that the love of Christ compels you, that you have entered a communion with God that squeezes out sin, a communion with God that motivates you to repent, 
of what you were and to work in favor of what you are now. That is restored by grace through faith in Christ. None of us are above this. But the, the, the litmus test clearly seems to be to examine yourself on a pass-fail test to see that you are repentant. Have you repented of your sin? It's not if you have the proclivity to sin, if you're struggling with sin, or if you have sin in your past. The question is, have you repented of that sin, turned from it, denounced it, and began to worship and look to Christ for your salvation? If you have not, you fit into the category of 2 Corinthians 12, 21, of people that are familiar with the church, may even self-identify as professors of Christ, and yet Paul says, and we say to you, leaning in on you, I fear that when I come again and examine these things, I may be humble before you, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. What have they not repented of? Impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Question is not your proclivity to sin or God's power to save. The question is, are you producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Repentance is a spiritual fruit. Don't declare to have the fruit of the Spirit and live an unrepentant sexual life because you're not demonstrating it in any meaningful way. The character of Christ comes to bear in your bedroom. Should you reject that, you're rejecting the witness of the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul cries over it. He mourns over it. And we should too. And at the same time as we cry over it, we ought to have hope that God is doing a work, even through the warnings of Scripture, in his people for the upbuilding. Because authority was never meant to be wielded as an enemy force. Satan makes you think it's your enemy. It's not your enemy. It's your friend. Because spiritual authority, rightly wielded, demonstrates the grace in your life from the we, not from the me, from the we, the grace of Christ that is designed to get you all the way home. And that's really the thing, honestly. It's never meant to be a me excommunicating a you singular for something that I see wrong in your life. Matter of fact, it's not even really a catch-all for the unrepentance. You could be unrepentant in your heart. I mean, you could be a devil inside and still identify with the church, and there is no way we would ever reach the point of excommunication. We just wouldn't do it. We wouldn't have enough evidence. It wouldn't be known to the public. You wouldn't be sticking it in the eye of the witness of Christ and still claiming I can do what I want to do when I want to do. It would be none of that. It would just be private. So I don't mean to say that identification with the church as a member automatically means that your heart is pure. It should and can mean that on the main. All I'm to say is, is that you, if you characteristically and known, will not repent of sexual sin against Christ, it is the church's job, plural, all of us together as a church, to lean into you and say, you don't show any evidence of repentance, no meaningful evidence. You don't seem to care about the things of Christ. And, and, and boy, though, that sounds so hateful until you realize it's for your good, that authority's not your enemy. It's been the opposite in days past, but I must not preach against the sins of tyranny because today's sin is the sin of self-righteous anarchy where I just do what I want to do and you can't say anything about it except for Jesus has already said something about it as he, and he has delegated this kingdom authority to his members to say something about it. And it is an abdication of our responsibility to the defamation of the character witness of Christ in our culture to say nothing. So authority, number one, is not your enemy. Number two, authority 
Authority is for my joy. Authority is for my joy. I told you earlier that this word rejoice can mean be glad or greetings. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. He's counting all these members as brothers and sisters, even though he was careful not to use that title, that moniker, in chapters 10 through 13 of 4. He's used it in chapters 1 through 9. He's used it in 1 Corinthians. He wants to see every single person repentant. He's not keeping a grudge. He's just calling people to repentance that they might have great assurance of eternal life because that is the fruit of the Spirit. Repentance in our lives is a fruit. It, it comes from the root of union with Christ, which is all of Christ. It's all of Christ. It's not of us. We don't make our union with Christ happen. And so he says here, rejoice. Rejoice, brothers. Finally, I say rejoice. And then it says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. There are six imperatives in these two short verses. Rejoice, aim, comfort, agree, live, greet. Rejoice, aim, or really restoration. Comfort, agree, live, and greet. Authority is for your joy. It's headed and footered, this passage is these imperatives, these commands. It's headed and footered with words of brother and sisterly greeting. It's so important that we have social lubrication, conversations, interactions with one another. It's part of the way that God grows us up in Christ is that we spend time with each other. And one of the most important things about that is the simple thing of greeting your brothers and sisters. Hi, how are you? Right? It's one of the things that's so unnatural about the COVID-19 crisis is we're in some ways told that we need to mitigate that, distance that. It shouldn't be done with a handshake and a hug. But regardless of all that, we can still greet one another, right? And soon enough, the lid will be off of that, and we'll be greeting one another with hugs and holy hugs instead of holy kisses, I guess. It's not about the mode. It's about the holiness. It's about the pursuit of holiness together. Holy greetings is what it's about. We'll be greeting one another. But even now, right? How you doing? How's it going? No, 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 really, really. How's it going? How's it really going? I mean, that's, what, that's our job. As Christians, that's our job. And so that sounds like not a whole lot of a job, but actually it's a huge job. It's a huge job. These imperatives are for the church. Look at how these greetings are, are, what the middle of it is with these greetings and these imperatives, that we are to have joy and greet one another as we aim for restoration of the wayward brother and sister. Restoration is a catchword in chapter 13. Or comfort one another. We, we parakaleo one another. It's a moniker for the Holy Spirit. We are comforting, encouraging one another, urging, exhorting one another. That's, that's a lot of work, isn't it? To urge one another toward godliness, holiness. We're to have the same mind with one another, agree with one another. Certainly that doesn't mean a kind of monolithic, we see everything just the same and it's all about the gray and there's never any bright colors in our views and whatnot. It's not that, it's not that the way that you see the world around you is going to be precisely the same. It's going to mean that you're going to be of the same mind with regard to the authority of Scripture as having come from God and the need to rightly interpret it therein. Our lives. So you're going to have one mind. We're going to be seeking, as we are commanded, we're going to be seeking communion with one another and God through these imperatives restoration, comfort, agreement, which implies thinking, living in peace. It's an Old Testament greeting, is shalom. In the New Testament, erene, peace, to greet one another with peace, to live in peace. Matter of fact, the range of meaning of that word could also be greeting. 
So all this to me, and it's all rooted in God, which we'll get to in our fourth and final point, but all of this to me is about us as one another seeing this authority that's not our enemy, but as a congregation, authority that's for our joy. It's for our joy to, to, to get into the marrow of one another's lives and to say, how you doing? Hi. I greet you in the name of Jesus. How you doing really? You know, to run away and hide from that is, is the opposite of spiritual blessing that leads to spiritual fruit. As a matter of fact, this text says that God himself, who is love and peace himself, that's his character attributes, will be with you ostensibly as you live this way, as you seek to live out these commands. You say, well, how, how am I going to get restoration? And how's it going to be joy to comfort each other in troubled times? And how, how are we going to find agreement? I mean, I can't even agree with my wife. How am I going to agree with a congregation of believers? You know, actually, I can. We love each other. I don't mean that. But I'm trying to illustrate a little bit here. Uh, you know, how do we live in peace? How do we live a life of peace, at peace with one another, basically, instead of quarrels all the time? How do we find a way to work through that and have, have social interactions that are meaningful? How do we do that? Well, the promise from this passage is that God is with us as that is our pursuit. As that is our pursuit, God is with us. So authority is for my joy. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller. He was preaching on, uh, he was preaching on John chapter 2. He titled the sermon, Lord of the Wine. But he said, Jesus' first miracle was to bring festival joy. He said, why are most people not in church? I don't know. But he said, sometimes, oftentimes I hear, I had that religious upbringing, but now I want to have a good time. And I wonder, he says, is that your view? If there's even a part of you that understands Christianity this way, look, suck it up. Just say no. Keep your nose clean. Stay out of trouble. I know it's a grind, but if you want to be saved from hell, it's a tough job. That's the way it is. If that's your view of Christianity, he says, if that's what you believe, Jesus throws down the gauntlet in passages like this. And he says, look, if you're going to reject me, okay, but don't reject me unintelligently. Reject me intelligently. Do you understand that, and what he's getting at is, I come to bring festival joy. I'm the Lord of the feast. The marriage feast of the Lamb on the last, after the last day will be a feast. We'll be gathered around a great big table with King Jesus, and we'll be appropriately having a good time. Now, that, that's, a, that's a hard needle to thread in this day and age because we do certainly live in the fallen human condition as we're being saved. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Jesus intends to be Lord of the feast, and he is Lord of the feast. So at least know what we're rejecting. We shouldn't reject Christianity because we want to have fun. We should understand the way that Christianity is fun. And then, if that's not fun to us, reject it based on the fruit of the Spirit, not based on a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Keller went on in his sermon to say uh, he had a mentor that was a pastor, and they were talking about somebody that was running for political office. And the pastor said, I don't think that guy should run for office. He's not joyful enough. He, Keller said that always stuck with him. So that somehow that, that he had a, an intuition from the Scripture that a lack of joy meant something. Well, it means something in this passage, just a lack of joy. We, we think that to have joy means we have to lack principles, but that's not the case at all. You have principles and joy, both. Jesus does. And Keller goes on to say, and I think it's also good, I'm just quoting him here, we should take some responsibility for the joy in our lives. Jesus sat in the midst of joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so we can sit in the midst of sorrow, sipping the coming joy. 
Don't be downcast. Be a person who loves life. Are you, pers- are you a person people want to be with? Do you love life? Do you have a note of feastal joy over you? Do you know you can control that? It's an imperative. Look at his glory and have faith in him. And don't let this little thing, this temporary thing, overshadow the gift that you've got. It's like, it's like a child throwing an unjoyous fit because their toy can't be played with until after the party's over. You know, this is what it's like. We have this great feast coming. And I want you to know that the measure of authority in our lives right now, as delegated from Jesus, is for our joy and our good so that we are being prepared and assured of that day. But Jesus is certainly Lord of the feast. And he is calling us through his apostles to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice and be glad. So it's not antithetical to the right use of authority. It's not antithetical to it at all. These six imperatives point to this work that we have to do together, but we can do it with joy and with greetings as we get to know one another. Thirdly, and briefly, authority is for the nations. Look simply at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. It comes to us in English in five short words. All the saints greet you. And what you say is, man, pastor, you can really make a point out of anything, can't you? Like the shortest verse in the whole passage, and you're going to deliver the whole third point on those five words. Yes, the truth of the matter is a preacher can talk about anything for any length of time. It's true. But I firmly believe, having prayed about this in my study, that this is a worthy third point. So we're just going to let verse 13 stand all along. We've talked about all alone. We've talked about how authority is not my enemy. And we've done some deconstructing of that because it's so prevalent in our lives. We've talked about how authority is for my joy. It's for your joy. It's not for your pain. It's for your joy. In the midst of pain, we can be joyous as right usage of authority in the congregation is played out. We need to shift now in verse 13 and get the myopia out, get the short-sightedness out. We need to look at the world around us. And we need to say that authority is for all the nations, and it's for the good of all the nations. This divinely delegated congregational church authority is for good everywhere. I would even go so far as to say, as in our support of missionaries, we should be supporting missionaries that seek to plant healthy churches all over the world. Not just missionaries that are freelance artists, but that seek to rightly appropriate divine delegated authority in churches for the good of the saints that are to be presented as mature in Christ on the day of the Lord, Colossians 1.28. So all the saints greet you. Well, what is Paul trying to imply here? What is God trying to get us to see? It's that there is an interconnection in the universal church that is to be felt and seen and cared for by the local church. Even though of the 113 usages of the word church in the New Testament, even though 104 times it's referencing the local church, those other nine usages referencing the church universal are very important and carry freight. Passages like this remind us of that. All the saints greet you. There is a greeting. There is a a sense in which we are reminded that other churches in the world right now are seeking to live out those in six imperatives with the help of Christ with them, just like we are. Matter of fact, a great encouragement to Elijah when he was running away in a fit of spiritual depression was when he finally sat down, God gave him a vision for 7,000 other believers that hadn't worshiped Baal, that hadn't bowed the knee to evil. These saints greet you too from afar. Do you understand that where the kingdom has most come in the here and now is in the faithful local churches with the right administration of the ordinances and the right preaching of God's world all over planet earth? Do you understand it's not a nation, it's in the nations. We have infected, like embassies, every nation on planet earth, and that is God's intention until he reconvenes at the feast day of the Lamb and we all come under one banner 
and geographically worship Jesus at a great meal, whatever that's going to be like. I'm really excited for it. I just can't exactly get my head around it all. In the meantime, as we are church developers, you realize you're not alone as a church. Even though you seem meager, you're not alone. And we're empowered. All the saints greet you, and we in turn should greet them. And we should support missions to all the nations because of this very simple yet profound fact. Think again about Matthew 28. Pastor Kurt read it earlier in the service. Listen to this passage in light of my points and see how it brings this together. I want to preach another sermon on the Trinity from 2 Corinthians 13, 14 at a later date. But all it'll have to be is just a kind of a tucked in point right at the end of this sermon because it's too vast to take over all of 2 Corinthians 13. It deserves its own place because it's who God is, the triune God. But look at how authority is for all the nations and authority is the triune God's comes together, not only in the passage that we're reading today, but also in the Great Commission passage. Listen afresh to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, them being his disciples, his brothers and sisters, post-resurrection. He's greeted them. They've come together. He says, All Look at that $10 word, authority. All authority. Remember, authority is not my enemy. Remember, authority is for my joy. If Jesus is for my joy, authority is for my joy. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to whom? After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after his passion, his resurrection, he's appearing during this season, this pre-Pentecost season, and he makes this statement to his disciples on that mountain in Galilee. Who's been given all authority? You can say it with me. Jesus. You say, well, Jesus has got authority, but nobody else does. Well, watch the rest of this, the way this floats. Watch how it floats out. He says, go, therefore, looks at his disciples then, go, therefore, and make disciples. You go, go do to them what I've done to you. Go make disciples. And how do you make disciples of all nations? Well, you, you baptize them as believers. You baptize them in the name of whom? Just Jesus The Trinity is supposed to formulate how we pray and how we baptize, isn't it? Baptize them in the name of, you can say it with me, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. New City Catechism has one, a little song that keeps coming to my head because we've learned it with the kids. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are three persons in one God. Great resource, New City Catechism. That's supposed to affect, right? So Jesus' authority to his disciples, for his future disciples, going into the nations, authority for all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, the Trinity, because that's how God's made himself known to us. And then look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. Right? There's a teaching ministry that commands the imperatives of Scripture. Right? That's the communion we're supposed to pursue, even though the union is only given to us by Christ. We're supposed to pursue this communion by obeying the commands, by teaching this teaching ministry, this proclamation ministry. Obeying it, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And what does he say? In this delegation of authority to do these things as churches here, there, and yonder, in this authority that's not my enemy, that's for our joy, that's for the nations, this triune God promises what? He says he will be with us, that this person work of Jesus will go with us in the right administration of this delegated authority to the end of the age. Always he's with us. Well, now flip back to 2 Corinthians 13. And listen to how this ends. He says, the peace will be with you, verse 11. So he's with you. God is with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And look at how verse 14 goes. It sounds a lot like the Great Commission. The grace of Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus is how we come into salvation. 
The love of God, right? Don't think of God as, as wrathful toward his children. He loves you. He loves you as much now as he's ever going to love you. He's not going to love you less or more. His love for his children is profound and consistent. And he, he's, he has created this union with you. He loves you. And it says here, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. Like I said, worthy of another sermon. But as it relates to authority, the authority of the triune God has been delegated not only to Jesus Christ, who will come again riding on a white horse to consummate his kingdom and usher in a great marriage feast in all of eternity in the heavenlies with us, his people. It's not only that, but he, his authority, has been delegated to the apostles and to the disciples for all time to carry out this commission, which is authoritative in a patient, loving, kind way, but it's authoritative. To be done joyfully, to be done patiently, to be done, to be done with greetings, to be done, this is all, this is us together. And it's rooted in this great commission. And authority is ultimately and finally God's. It's the triune God's. His work in church history encourages us. His work in other churches encourages us. Our work as it goes out to all nations should encourage them. We need to come out of our spiritual myopia and our spiritual depression and see God's working in the world past, present, and future until the return of Christ and that we're a part of his authoritative mission, not individually by ourselves, but together corporately. And that's where the discipline of the church comes in out of love. This trinity is how God's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, unified as one in the Godhead, and yet distinct in person and in function. This is how we worship God. We, we don't worship a person of God without encountering the entire God. God is, in three persons, a blessed trinity. More on that later, but I just want to conclude today by recapping where we've been and giving you an encouraging admonition. We are called to live under the authority of Christ as an authority to, to one another in this divinely delegated congregation that is filled with the presence of God, especially aware of this presence we are as we pursue these imperatives to restore one another from sin, to comfort one another in pain when they're in pain, to, to pursue agreement like-mindedness based on, the, based on the word of God, to live with peaceful greetings to one another, to be involved in one of those lives. This is the top and tail and the warp and woof of First and Second Corinthians, and it is for us and it is for today. May you live out this authority because it is God's to give and it is not ours to misuse or to abdicate. Will you regularly check in with the people closest to you? Will you build relationships with people from all backgrounds because the gospel has made us one new man in place of two? Will you not cling to the smallest, slightest offense against you? Will you be slow to anger since it is your glory to overlook an offense? Will you readily forgive those who wronged you with the conviction that so far as it depends on you, you must live peaceably with all, Romans 12, 18? Will you pursue peace with one another because Christ has pursued peace with you, not in some kumbaya sense. He bought peace with the war he did on the cross by his shed blood. This is not some tranquil peace with a stream. It is a war-bought peace. It's peace through strength, and it's peace for us because Christ has created our union. He has created this union, and it is our job to pursue this communion together in Christ. Let's relentlessly pursue it until we are called up yonder. Amen? Let's pursue it together to the glory of the Christ that has given us this responsibility 
And let us live out this responsibility by faith. In Jesus' name, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for granting us the indwelling spirit that gives us strength and fruit and help to live this together. I am so thankful that we don't have a church discipline case before us right this moment. I am so thankful that you are leading your people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance in such a way that we can spur one another on toward discipleship in you without having to be curt and terse and severe. But Lord, may we never lose sight of the fact that you give us authority for our good and for our joy. And that long-term, this authority interacts us with all of the nations and reminds us of who you are, which is most worthy of praise as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.